Beautiful. Thank you, choir. So today has the dubious distinction of being both Easter Sunday and April Fool's Day. And while I'm sure there are some interesting theological provocations to be made at the intersection of those holidays, um, Jesus as trickster, or you thought Jesus was dead, April Fool's, uh, but for better or worse, that's not the direction that I'll be heading this morning. For any of you who are curious, the last time Easter fell on April Fool's Day was 1956. It'll happen again in 2029 and in 2040 and then not again until the 22nd century. Uh, Mostly to me, it feels a little bit like wasting an April Fool's Day being on a Sunday. I have at least one good April Fool's sermon in me, but that may have to wait until April 1st, 2035, which means I have 17 years to plan. But for this morning, I'd like to invite us to reflect on a more Easter-related topic, how a forbidden religion swept the world. If this sermon leaves you curious to learn more, it was inspired by the latest book by the religion scholar Bart Ehrman titled uh, The Triumph of Christianity, in which he explores how it was that early Christianity began to grow into what it is today, the world's largest religion with two point, more than two billion adherents. Uh, For anyone wondering, the Hindu tradition comes in third with around 900 million um, adherents, and Islam currently comes in second. However, uh, it's projected to become the world's largest religion by around 2070. But for now, if we turn back the clock a little more than 2,000 years, it's interesting to consider the unexpected turn of events that happened after the death of the historical Jesus. Before four centuries had passed, 20 or so um, lower-class, illiterate Jews from rural Galilee had become a church of more than 30 million people. How did that happen? One traditional answer to this question is that that exponential rate of growth, well, that must be proof of divine blessing. God must have been behind that. It, the problem, one among many problems with that explanation is that if you attribute seemingly good things in your life to a higher power smiling upon you, then do you consistently attribute bad things into your life to that same higher power punishing you? Frankly, some people do. Um, I think I'm not a fan of that theology, so I'm not sure that's a good option. Furthermore, it's far from clear that the brand of Christianity that did become popular, that was able to grow to be 30 million people in the Roman Empire, or, to be honest, the brand of Christianity most popular in the United States today and around the world, I'm, I'm not actually sure that brand of Christianity has much to do with the love and forgiveness and mercy that was preached in practice by the historical Jesus. So maybe it is appropriate for Easter and April Fools to be um, to coincide. After all, that may be the grandest prank in history to have your faith become the most popular religion in the world at the cost of sacrificing its core values. To quote Jesus himself from the eighth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, for what will it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? From a secular point of view, the most common answer to why Christianity grew so rapidly is not that God did it. It is that the Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity in the year 311. 
Take a look at that chart on the cover of your order of service. You'll see a significant inflection point in the early 300s, right around when Constantine converted. Indeed, Dr. Ehrman admits that this was his understanding until recently, until he did the research that has become his latest book. But one of his most interesting discoveries, and he's not the only person to have said this, is that Christianity may well have succeeded even if Constantine hadn't converted. It may have been a little bit slower trajectory, but it may have happened anyway. How is that possible? The answer is that Christianity had been growing all along, it just had not yet reached a critical mass until the early 4th century. In short, Christianity's exponential rate of growth can be explained by standard mathematical exponential growth curve. That's what you're seeing. You can map that right onto a standard mathematical exponential growth curve. For the mathematically inclined among us, you know who you are. It's when the ratio of the rate of change to the quantity to its current size remains constant over time. To some of you, that made complete sense. Others of you are like, what? So for the non-mathematically inclined, uh, it's the same idea that is sometimes called the miracle of compounded interest. It's why you always hear financial advisors saying the, early you, the earlier you start saving, the better, because it's more com- interest that you have more time for that interest to grow and for interest to be applied to a steadily growing nest of money. And even with that miracle of compounded interest in those first decades of saving uh, or of Christianity growing, even if you have a steady rate of growth, the incremental changes are still relatively small. Uh, but with an increasingly greater mass, uh, mass of money or of people converting their friends, family members, and colleagues, then you can all of a sudden see a, a tremendous growth kind of take off at a certain point. That's why I invite you to invite your friends and family and colleagues as we grow, continuing to do that makes a difference so we can get our exponential growth curve on, right? So I should perhaps hasten to add at that point that this is precisely the sort of growth that promoters of Ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes promise, right? That this that this does sometimes happen. They promise it's definitely going to happen. Give me your money, right? But the circumstances are not always present to allow growth to be sustained long enough to catalyze to catalytically grow, as you're seeing on that chart, and as it did happen in the early centuries of Christianity. And even if the type of Christianity to which people were converting was much less radical than the beloved community that Jesus of Nazareth envisioned, it remains remarkable that a religion that began with 20 20 poor illiterate peasants in the backwaters of Galilee grew to, to convert half the Roman Empire, 30 million people, in about 370 years. That's, that's not bad. It's not a bad business model. Based on the available data, it didn't have, you know, Jesus was not necessarily, you know, as we say about Christmas, Jesus didn't come to be the patron saint of fourth quarter earnings, but since he's become that, it's become a good business model. It may not have anything to do with Jesus, but. Uh, based on the available data, here's Ehrman's reconstruction of this exponential growth curve, this miracle of compounded interest that put Christianity on track to become the world's largest religion. The first major catalyst was the missionary activities of the Apostle Paul. But note that Paul didn't convert Jews, he converted principally pagans. And it wasn't rural backwater people, it was in the cities where people were packed together. And that 
well, part of how Paul did this, and this is what he, for those of you who know your Bible, was fighting with Peter and James about, is Paul was like, don't worry about keeping Sabbath. You don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to eat kosher, right? It'll be fine. Uh, so that he, he started by watering it down, and that, and that made it easier to sell. It's the same thing, you know, Constantine did. We can still be violent and be empire and still be Jesus followers. Not really, but, uh, so, but Paul did cause this sort of avalanche of conversions and during those first three decades from the crucifixion of Jesus around the year 30 to when Paul wrote his last letter, the letter to the Romans in 60, uh, in those first three decades, there's about a 300% rate of growth um, every decade for a total of about 1,000 or about 1,500 Christians. So in three decades, you went from 20 to about 1,000 or 1,500. Uh, we know that the rate of growth did slow after that point because if it had stayed at 300% per decade by the year 160, you'd already have a billion Christians. That definitely didn't happen, not for the least of which reasons that there were only about 300 million human beings alive at that point, right, in the middle of the second century. So Ehrman continues, after Paul's death, there was almost certainly this rapid decline. Say it went down an average to 60% of growth per decade for the next 40 years up until the end of the first century. There would still have been a lot of energy and enthusiasm, not only among those who thought Jesus had saved them from their sins, but also those who legitimately expected Jesus was coming back soon. Not like soon as in a few years ago, but like really they thought Jesus was coming back in their lifetime or the lifetime of their children. So there was this urgency that was part of what spread the message, this apocalypticism. Uh, there's an appendix in Ehrman's book if you want to dive into the full nerdy mathematical details, but uh, again, sort of if you want to glance at that chart in your order of service, an uh, educated guess is there are approximately 7,000 to 10,000 Christians around the year 100, 200 years before Constantine. But you'll see that number barely registers on your graph, right? You can hardly tell the difference, and that's part of the point. 10,000 Christians, that's way more than the original 20, and it resulted from a steady rate of growth, but that's about 160th of 1% of the citizens of the Roman Empire at that time. A century later, in 200, thanks to, again, a continued steady rate of growth, there are around 160,000 Christians, but that's still, that's one quarter of 1% of the 60 million people in the Roman Empire. But by the time yet another century passes with a similar rate of growth in the year 300, suddenly there were 2.5 to 3.5 million Christians. We've gone from less than 1% of the Roman Empire to 10%. And that's kind of a tipping point toward change that you, you see with that, that curve going upwards. But keep in mind, that achievement of reaching 10%, that happened prior to Constantine's conversion. And that's part of Ehrman's point. So on one hand, Constantine's conversion, the increasingly favored status given to the Christian tradition by Constantine and many, not all, of the succeeding um, emperors, did help Christianity continue to catalytically grow from 3 million, 10% of the Roman Empire, to 30 million, 50%. On the other hand, Constantine may have actually seen, instead of his conversion being like the sole determining factor, it may well have been that Constantine saw the writing on the wall and wanted to hitch his star to, or, or, you know, was open to Christianity and so converted, kind of seeing the, what was happening. As the saying goes, you sometimes see politicians metaphorically with their finger in the air trying to say which way is the wind blowing. And maybe I'll go that, not all politicians, but. 
looking back, Constantine arguably chose well because within 80 years of his conversion, the transformation was massive and official. Rome was predominantly and officially Christian. There is so much more to say about that if you get into the details of Constantine's personal conversion as well as the shifting relationship over time between how the different uh, emperors to come would relate to the Christian tradition. But for our purposes, I'll limit myself to two more brief points. First, studying this exponential growth of Christianity not only allows us to trace that, that sharp increase that happened in the fourth century, but also invites us to imagine what was it like along the way as you go from having a thousand Christians to ten thousand Christians to a hundred, you know, what would have that have been like and what what differences might that have made? To give you just one example, as best scholars can discern, uh, um, there were at least around 50 separate Christian communities, and perhaps many more, by the year 100. And we know that those communities wrote letters to one another because we have copies of about 50 of them written between 50 and 150, some of which are included in the Christian New Testament, some of which we just have copies of um, through various other means but weren't canonized. So to think about what that might mean, let's say that between the years 50 and 150 CE, those 50 known communities wrote letters to one another, um, wrote two letters a year, let's say. It's all, in all likelihood, they wrote many more than that. There um, was a low rate of literacy, but there were literate people, and they would have written letters. Um, that would mean that over that century alone, there would have been approximately 10,000 Christian letters, and we have copies of 50. That's just one example of what you can begin to think about of what all was actually going on in the fullness of the messy historical reality versus this small little window that we actually have um, records of. The final point I want to invite us to consider is one I've spent a lot of time wrestling with over the years. To what extent is the Christianity practiced, for example, by Paul of Tarsus in the first century, by the Emperor Constantine in the fourth century, in much of the U.S. um, today, how much of that is meaningfully connected to the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth? After all, it's quite striking that the Nicene Creed, it was written at the Council of Nicaea in 325, it was called by Constantine, it was presided over by Emperor Constantine. It includes this section about Jesus. Some of you will know these words because you grew up saying them. That he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and on the third day he rose again. Now, what's missing? What's missing is the entirety of Jesus' life and teachings. Have you ever noticed that about the Nicene Creed, that it skips straight from Jesus' birth to his death? As if all that mattered was that he was born... You know, why didn't they just kill him as an infant, right? Because he was like, all that matters is he was born and died and, um, and then was said to rise again. This theology has sometimes been called vampire Christianity, only wanting Jesus for his blood. Regarding the disconnections, then, between Jesus' religion and Constantinian Christianity, Ehrman writes, 
Constantine had dedicated himself to honoring and obeying the God of Christians. And that really mattered because Christianity was monotheistic and it was exclusivistic at that time, for his paganism was polytheistic. So it was no problem. But Constantine converted in a way that, so like pagans would be fine. Oh, you want to worship Jesus? That's fine. You know, whatever. You have your altar, I have mine. But Christianity demanded exclusivism, at least as interpreted then, and, and demanded that you convert so that for everybody that became Christian, pagans lost a person. And that was incredibly consequential. But Constantine Constantine did personally obey the God of the Christians, but he did not do so with complete success if being a Christian means things like loving your enemies and turning the other cheek. You know, things the historical Jesus did and talked about. He was not, Constantine was not the sort of figure that Jesus would have envisioned while preaching in rural Galilee. Constantine was an emperor. He had enormous burdens and responsibilities that are different from those of an itinerant Jewish prophet. A harsh legislation and the occasional or more than occasional ruthless act were part of an emperor's job description. Possibly the most important thing Constantine actually did for the future of Christianity was to make sure his two ch- his kids were raised Jewish, particularly his sons. Ehrman, as a historian, chooses to withhold judgment on whether this turn of events was for good or for ill. In contrast, I can, ima- I can remember being challenged on this precise point by Dr. Jim Edwards, who is my favorite undergraduate philosophy professor. The college I attended and where he taught for decades was historically Christian. It had been founded in 1826 with a motto of Christo et Doctrine, for Christ and for learning. But it had become a secular liberal arts college a few years prior to when I started attending. To Edwards, the college remained Christian only in a compromised Constantinian sense of that word. And he thought it was important to be honest and transparent about that. He thought it was actually pretty problematic that it retained the motto, Christo et Doctrine, when it was trying to be a liberal arts college. He said, that's not fair to us, and it's not fair to Jesus, actually. Uh, these are his words. He says, in the, in the, the, this college seems to me that it's seeking to be a tolerant place. A place that believes in academic freedom and untrammeled inquiry. A place that tries to respect serious thinking and plain speaking. It wants to offer its students a wide range of perspectives. And all that's great. You know, he would say as an atheist philosopher, I wholly endorse all of those things. But he continues, it doesn't have much to do with any interesting form of Christianity. He says, I don't think Jesus would have been worth much if he tried to offer his disciples a wide range of perspectives, right? Can't you just see it? Teacher, should we pay tribute to Caesar or not? Well, my friend, it depends on your conception of the state. That's not Jesus, it's Plato, right? So nor would Paul have been so interesting or so scary if he had committed himself and the churches he founded to academic freedom and untrammeled inquiry, right? No, Paul was constantly writing these angry letters saying, you're getting it wrong, you're doing it wrong, not not think what you want, right? Figure it out. Uh, uh, no, these guys are interesting only to the extent that they're original and uncompromising, uh, to the extent they're willing to draw lines, not in large perspectives. All that being said, it's also fascinating to see the ways that over the two millennia of Christian history, within even this exponentially enlarged Christianity made possible by the compromises of the Apostle Paul, the compromises of Constantine, and many others, 
that despite all that, authentic expressions of the historical Jesus and his vision of beloved community have nevertheless continued to arise from time to time. To mention just a few, in the 4th century with the desert mothers and fathers, in the Middle Ages with the Waldensians, the Beguines, and the Franciscans, uh, today in places like the Larche communities founded by Jean Vanier, the Catholic worker houses founded by Dorothy Day, the peacemaker teams of the Mennonite tradition. To the extent that those things that I just named are unfamiliar to you is to the extent to which Constantinian Christianity has succeeded. So while exclusivism and Christian supremacy are part of the Constantinian compromise and far too much of how Christianity is lived out today, there remains much to be gained in this age or in any age I would invite you to consider from wrestling with wisdom teachers like Jesus of Nazareth. In that spirit, stay seated for now, but go ahead and turn in your hymnal to number 276. As we sing in a few moments in that hymn, I invite you to really notice the lyrics. Notice if a word or phrase pops out to you. Allow these lyrics uh, to invite you to reflect on what are the aspects of the life and teachings of Jesus that do continue to resonate with you today. What wisdom might there be for your life or the life of the world, even 2,000 years later? Let's rise and body your spirit as we sing together. Very good. And there will be some more alleluias to follow in the postlude uh, for the... Uh, Hallelujah Chorus, the, the tradition uh, is to stand for that, but that actually comes from the King of England. You know, when the king stood, you stood, and that's kind of how that developed. He's not here. So uh, if you feel led to stand during the Hallelujah Chorus, by all means, stand. If you feel led to sit and just to let the music wash over you, that is fine too, uh, just uh, as you feel led. Uh, the last thing I'll share with you is that Ehrman wrestles with this some in the book of whether, you know, he sort of says as a historian, we can't actually know the counterfactual. We can't know what would have happened if Constantine hadn't converted, what would have happened if paganism had stayed instead of Christianity. But one thing we can say is, you know, paganism may have developed in different ways, but there are ways in which as compromised as Christianity has become and was, there are differences that it made to have that seed of love and mercy and forgiveness at the heart of the story, even if it was often ignored. Um, For example, the Peace of Rome, the infamous Pax Romana, as it was called, it was explicitly based on a threat of violence. You will be peaceful because if you are not, we will send our Roman legions on our Roman roads and we will kill you. I mean, like, that was the, that was the peace of Rome. The peace of Rome was founded on a threat of violence. Jesus envisioned a beloved community of all people founded not on violence, but because there was justice. That we're not going to be violent because we all have enough, right? We may not all be totally equal, but everyone has enough, and therefore there isn't a need for violence. It's a very different vision. It's a vision founded on on love and inclusion. So it did, it does make a difference that, that this, that Christianity won, even, even with all the compromises. And we can't change the past. That all, that all has happened. But we have more control over the present and the future. So the challenge becomes to us, this East or our, or any time, to see how are there those stuck places in our life that can be made different if we continue our journey with love. Not with threats, but with love. To continue our journey with justice and peace. And whatever taste you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, or peace, or joy, that goes with you into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly 
and with Thanksgiving.